It's, it's never a bad thing to face your own mortality, is it? Uh, many of you have faced your mortality in, in, in a very definite and prominent way of late. All of us at some point recognize not only is this life going to end someday, but it is far more fragile than we ever thought that it was. And it's not a bad thing to be aware of us, aware of that. It's, it's true that any of us may burst at any moment into eternity through an automobile accident or some freak uh, moment of nature's fury finding us in a vulnerable place. But when you hear the words cancer or heart damage, You recognize how unsure life in a fallen world is. When you face your mortality, it usually has a profound impact, at least initially. Maybe it doesn't last, but it does so initially. How do you suppose you would do if you were called to martyrdom? And in addition to the intense physical suffering, there would be psychological difficulty and even spiritual suffering is thrown into the mix. It's one thing to contemplate such possibilities from a safe and secure seat. It's another thing when the choices lie right before you that will determine whether you live or die. What if, what if somebody burst through the doors and said, all right, confess Jesus, stay here and die. Deny him, walk away and live. I, the fact that we're here as a body would probably help us. I think a lot of us would stay. I think we might be surprised at who might leave. You just never know. Not many in this life, want to hear that they will soon be standing before the Lord, no matter how glorious we believe that day will be. In today's text, Mark 14, 26 through 52, Jesus is going to be looking into the face of his own death, but it will be so much more that the cessation of his own life that he's going to be contemplating. He will be looking into the sin and the death of the world. Think of how badly and how guilty you feel for just little small sins. What, what, what the world would consider small sins that you commit. Just nag at you. Imagine looking into the cup of God's wrath against the sin of mankind, knowing that it's about to be poured out on you. And imagine also that you've never done anything to deserve it. There's never been any wrath of God directed at you because you're perfect. You're God, in fact. And you have had this incredible, intimate fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. For all eternity since before time began, because time never began. 
if you're God in Jesus and the Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane, which appropriately is named or means oil press. I'm going to start in Mark 14, 26, and I'm going to comment on uh, these first verses. And then when we get to verse 32, I'll ask you to stand as the remainder of the text is read. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You remember, just finished the Last Supper. Don't try, if possible, not to separate this. If your Bible is open, look back to those words just before. This is my body. This is the blood of the covenant. Do this when you, or do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. And Jesus said to them, so they sang a hymn and they went out. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So the last supper has ended. The men sing a hymn. And then they head out to a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Jesus prophesied that his disciples would abandon him. When he uses imagery like the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter, perhaps some of them think about Isaiah 53. Where's that that language, the language of sheep going astray and the striking of the chosen one of God is given. Jesus assured his disciples, that he would once again shepherd them in Galilee. When he says, I will go before you in Galilee, doesn't mean I'll go to Galilee and then you can come. What he's saying here is that he will shepherd them in Galilee just like he has done all for these three to three and a half years. And Jesus did so after the resurrection, though he first appeared to them in Jerusalem. Then verse 29, Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Famous last words, don't you know? We've probably uttered a few ourselves like this. It's clear from Jesus' words at the table and on their way to the garden that Jesus knows everything that's going to happen, including Judas' betrayal, the disciples' abandonment of him, his arrest, execution, and his resurrection, in fact. As for Peter's brave words, I'm so glad that I have never said anything like this. Lord, I would never, or Lord, I always will. Of course that we've made promises that we've broken. Aren't you glad that even after you failed, that Jesus says, I'll meet you in Galilee and I'll lead you as I always have. God's grace, his rich favor toward those who believe was extended at a horrific price to Jesus. The reader of 
Mark's gospel is allowed to follow Jesus deep into Gethsemane, where we see his desperate anguish as he fully absorbs the horror of what is ahead of him and the dread that is upon him, born of a concern that is so much greater than the excruciating suffering caused by death on a cross. So let's join Jesus at Gethsemane. If you would, please stand. And I will read the remainder of the text. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Weren't you the one that was going to die? You can't even... Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. And you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Father, we pray uh, that your word would pierce our hearts 
and that we would have that odd mixture of thoughts and odd mixture of emotions that bind us to you. We pray that as we see Jesus' agony in Gethsemane, that we would recognize the price that was paid for our sins and bind us more closely to yourself. Not in reality, we can't be bound any closer when we know Jesus. But in our hearts, in our desires, Lord, to follow you and live for you and be Jesus to the world. May our way, the way of the disciple, be the way of the king, which is the way of the cross. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It's amazing, is it not, that the disciples uh, could get to this juncture and not know that Jesus was going to die. How did they miss it? After the Lord's Supper, which pointed directly to, the, to his death, once again, Jesus prophesied his death, saying that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. At the same time, Jesus prophesied that he would rise from the dead. This was the fifth time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus said, I will rise from the dead. How could the disciples have missed what was to come? There are no less than five illusions in this Lord's Supper and afterwards the, the comments that are right afterwards that, that point to the prophet Zechariah. Well, actually, the Zech, prophet Zechariah pointed to Jesus. Five times there are illusions, primarily from chapters 9 to 14 of Zechariah. I, I, once again... As we look at this, you can just be thankful that, that none of us are like these disciples. I mean, we never miss the truth of Scripture that we need until it's too late. We do that all the time, don't we? We see the truth, but we're thinking, you just don't know. You just don't know what I'm going through. And then later, we find that the word, the word that really gives us Jesus was sufficient all along. But Jesus' future didn't depend on on the disciples' bravery. Jesus' kingdom would not be won by the sword as Peter would so painfully learn in only a few hours. When Jesus spoke to the disciples of his death, Peter and the others were quite confident, not only in their ability to fight, but also in their ability to fight with courage even to the death. Well, Good intentions. I mean, they always had thought that, that the Messiah would put down the oppressors of the Jews with a mighty whack. And now Jesus is saying, no, in fact, the shepherd is going to be struck down. This path that Jesus was called to walk was a dark one. And it would get lonelier with every step that he took. 
the first steps that Jesus took after he prophesied the disciples' failing courage were towards Gethsemane. Again, the oil press, no doubt, having derived its name from the, the olive trees that were in the garden. As he approached the garden, he told the eleven, sit down and wait here. Peter, James, John, come with me. This was not unusual. Peter, James, and John had been singled out several times. And, and everybody knew they were the inner circle. And I'm sure they had to deal with all of that. But Jesus chose these three. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Can you think of one other time that Jesus asked anything of his disciples? One other time that Jesus asked anything of anybody. He said, go here, find a man doing this and tell him that the master has need of this. Yes, okay, in that sense. But at this level, Jesus had never done anything like this. And yet he says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Stay right here and watch. Wouldn't you think that Such a comment would startle these three at a level that their senses would be heightened and they would be fully engaged in prayer for Jesus. Even if they thought, it's time, it's time for the Messiah to to assume his rule. Apparently not. Of the four Gospels, Mark's account of the Gethsemane experience is the rawest. Emphasizing the agony that Jesus Endured as he saw the horror of what lay before him. That's some of the language in here. Horror is the literal meaning of some of this Gethsemane language. So Jesus leaves the three and goes deeper yet into the garden. And he fell on the ground. Now again, does Jesus strike you as dramatic in most of his ministry most of his life he just stands and tells it like it is and he walks into the garden and he falls down prostrate on his face crying out to the Lord and he reminded the father that all things are possible with him and then he boldly prayed very directly remove this cup from me Jesus was not demanding that God do what he prayed. Obviously, we see that in his commitment to God's will. Nevertheless, your will, not mine. He was asking the sovereign God of the universe if there might be another way to accomplish his purposes. David Garland says this, Prayers asking God to have a change of mind are not considered insubordinate, but actually exude trust that God listens to prayer and grants requests that can be reconciled with overall providence or with God's plan. And we see time after time that happening in Scripture as a guide for us in prayer. Lord, let this be the case according to your will. Garland goes on to say, 
Jesus' prayer does not try to run counter to the Father's purpose, but explores the limits of the purpose without trying to burst its bounds. Might there be another way? Might he escape the horrifying cup? Close quote. What was in the cup, the cup that Jesus so badly wanted to be removed from him? It was the wrath of God. Many times in the Old Testament, the Lord used this imagery to announce His judgment on His wayward people and on the wicked of the world, which covers essentially anyone who is not connected directly to Yahweh in the Old Testament or as we know Him more fully after Jesus' resurrection as a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Those are the wicked of the earth. All of us are the wicked of the earth until we know Jesus, until Jesus cleanses us from our sin. And his, God's plan for Jesus to cleanse us from his sin involved this night and this day that's coming up. It was so horrific for Jesus. Look at some of the Old Testament. By the way, it's something, it's either 565, probably I'll come to this in a few days, a few weeks. 565 times or 585 times that the wrath of God is spoken of in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus is looking at. Ezekiel 23, 32 to 34. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup. He's talking to Judah. That is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. A cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out. And gnaw its shards and tear your breast. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine. Well mixed. And he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And Isaiah 51, 7. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs the bowl. The cup of staggering. This was the cup into which Jesus was staring. It was the cup of God's wrath, a fiery abyss. What is the worst sin that you have ever committed, as far as you're concerned? If, I, if, if there's just one, I, I could go back and erase, I could go back and undo. What's the worst sin? You have ever committed. Anyone. Would you like to share that? No, no, I'm just kidding. Jesus was staring directly at God's wrath directed toward that sin. What's the really small sin that you committed this past week that's been gnawing at you? Or, or the many sins that you committed this past week that you forgot? I don't even remember. 
some of the things that I did. God's wrath is just as great towards those small sins as it is toward the worst sin ever committed in history. And it must be, not because he's a mean God, not because he is a, 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 a vengeful or a, a, a petty God. He says, you mess with me, I'll show you. It's not that at all. He is holy. He is perfect. And no more than we plan to commit sins this year, and you're horrified when someone suggests that you would do such a thing, God cannot, he cannot, it is impossible for him to look upon sin. And accept it and be okay with it. He has to judge sin. And it was his love for us. That is forcing Jesus to not only look into that cup. But to drink it. Some have suggested that Jesus faltered in the face. uh, Of this terrible death on a cross. While there would be no shame from from shrinking uh, before crucifixion, there's just no way that that was Jesus' agony. Even death on the cross, Stephen died at the hands of his persecutors. He died nobly. He died well, bravely. Old Testament saints, for 2,000 years, Christians have said, bring it on. Your fire will only last for an hour. I, I, I will live in eternity with my Lord and I dare not face the fires of, of God's wrath and judgment. Bring it on. It's almost impossible that Jesus' agony concerned the physical death that he faced. John Stott had this to say, quote, Jesus' physical and moral courage throughout his public ministry has been indomitable. To me, it is ludicrous to suppose that he was now afraid of pain, insult, and death. Socrates in the prison cell in Athens, according to Plato's account, took his cup of hemlock without trembling or changing color or expression. A cup of hemlock, by the way, that he was many times granted the freedom to avoid if he would just make some apology. He then raised the cup to his lips and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. When his friends burst into tears, he rebuked them for their absurd behavior and urged them to keep quiet and be brave. He died without fear, sorrow, or protest. And then Stott asked this question. So was Socrates braver than Jesus? Or were their cups filled with different poisons? Close quote. Was Jesus to be so identified with sinners as to bear their judgment? No wonder this purest of all souls recoiled from the horror of separation from his father and the wrath of God being poured out on him. As he bore our sin. Abba Father. Everything is possible. Remove this cup.
silence. It just wasn't possible in God's plan for the redemption of sinners to be changed in any way. Jesus was alone. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus staggered back to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What a contrast between Jesus' submissive agony and the disciples' stupor. Even though Jesus had just informed them that he was going to die and that one of the twelve would betray him. Yet we're all like Peter at some level. By the way, I won't go into detail on this, but some of you feel at times like you have betrayed the Lord like Judas. More likely you have denied the Lord like Peter. There's a huge difference. Um, and we're all like Peter at some level. That's why Jesus took the cup. He was not done praying, though. Twice more he went back, making his petitions to the Lord, to his Father as the hour drew near. Each time he returned, he had invited these three disciples to share in his agony during the darkest hour of all eternity. And they were asleep. Peter, who was never at a loss for words, wisely kept silent. And Jesus announced that his betrayer was at hand. And so Judas came up and kissed him. You go to Europe, you meet people, you're connected with people, you know them. They're going to kiss you on the cheek. If they really like you, they're going to kiss you on both cheeks. That's just difficult, you know. It's just difficult for me. I, a man comes up and says, you know. Uh, but it's a sign of great affection. That was the sign that students especially gave to their teacher. They would come and kiss their te teacher on the cheek. So the term of the term kiss of death finds its origin right here. Kiss of death is so contradictory, isn't it? <clears throat> Mark leaves Judas right here, but Matthew tells us that in very short order, Judas went out and hung himself. I, I'm sure that Judas had mixed feelings even as he kissed Jesus. What if I'm wrong about this? What if the money is not worth it? What if I've made a horrible mistake? And 
2 Corinthians talks about the difference between the sorrow of the world that leads to death and the godly sorrow that leads to repentance and life. It's one thing to just be horrified at what you've done and be so concerned about you that you can't live with yourself. It's another thing to be horrified about what your sin does to a righteous God. And we find freedom and release in the betrayal of Jesus and the suffering of Gethsemane and the indignity and the, and, and the utter absurdity of the trial against him. And then the crucifixion and dying alone. With even his father turned away. Immediately after Judas kissed Jesus, the soldiers grabbed the Savior. It must have been a scuffle because one of the disciples whom John identified as Peter swung a sword. He wasn't swinging to cut the man's ear off. He was swinging for the neck. Maybe his arm got jostled. Maybe he was really, you know, he was a fisherman. He wasn't a soldier. But he was going after it. I mean, he was living up to his claim. I'm going to be there, Lord. He was only able to cut off a portion of an ear. That's what we're told in the original language. Piecing information together from the other Gospels, Jesus immediately stopped the disciples and said, You don't know what you're doing. You're missing the nature of my kingdom. (coughs) And he went so far, Luke tells us, as to touch the man's ear. And it was healed. Wow, that must have been something. And, 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 and you know, Jesus and, and John, just before all of this, he says, who do you seek? And, and they said, Jesus. And he said, I am. And they fell backward. Can you imagine the scene when they come to arrest Jesus? Jesus was not just a king. He was the king. The way of this king, though, was completely upside down from the world's perspective of how kingdoms are won and sustained. Now, one day, this king is going to come just as people expected him to. And he is going to decimate his enemies and he will rule in justice. On this night, Jesus rebuked his captors for arresting him in secret rather than arresting him openly in the temple. Why arrest him in secret? Did they have something to hide? I mean, after all, it was his teaching that so angered them. And he had taught day after day. And yet they refuse to arrest him there. How long do you think it's going to be before the government says, you cannot say that. You cannot say that. We're going to have choices to make. Maybe sooner rather than later. Jesus had taught the scripture day in and day out. And it was the scripture That was now being fulfilled as those who had power to protect 
sought to silence the voice of the one who threatened to displace them as God's leaders over Israel. In the back and forth between Jesus and the guards, there's an account that is given only in Mark of a young man who had nothing more than a linen wrapped around him running away from the scene. That's, that's, that's the occasion. I mean, the account. Maybe this young man heard the commotion. He threw a linen on him and he ran out there. But when it all went down, this young man, whom many, maybe most, think was Mark himself, and when the soldiers, when it all was going down and the soldiers grabbed him, he slipped out of the garment and fled naked. There is spectacular symmetry in Scripture. So it's not an overreach when Tim Keller compares this garden scene to another garden scene, the Garden of Eden, in fact. There, Adam and Eve walked in the garden in perfect righteousness, original righteousness. <clears throat> Naked and unashamed. Nothing that would cause them to be aware of their nakedness until they sinned. And their eyes were open and they were ashamed and they covered themselves as quickly as they could. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as all the disciples took off in every direction, this young man fled naked and ashamed. On a night in which Jesus was more increasing, he was increasingly alone, this last escape seems to be the final indignity in the garden. And I think if I were that young man, I would have been getting away as well. We just all would have been. Because it had all gone entirely in a different direction than we had planned. And why die for a cause that is just not going to happen? You know what it's like to be alone, don't you? To feel alone. Maybe some more than others. The loneliest moment of my life was when I followed the casket of my wife out of the church. I remember watching my dad when my mom died in surgery. And it was so unexpected. Walking, I followed him out of the hospital and he was just going... And you're just like your parents. And I remember walking out of that church that day. So alone. I had loving family as well as an incredible church. And unbelievable friends who had flown in from everywhere to be at the funeral. Supporting me. But I felt I felt alone. I will probably never be any more loved than I was in that moment. <laughs> because everybody just, their hearts went out to me. And yet, if not one person had stood with me, if everybody had said, you got what you deserved, I hope you suffer. 
Even then, I wouldn't have been alone. Jesus stood with me. On that night in Gethsemane, he was utterly alone. Jesus was betrayed by one of the 12 disciples he had chosen to bring into his deepest confidence. The three disciples who were closest to him slept while he suffered so greatly that drops of blood fell from his body, even though he had begged them to hurt with him. All would forsake him. Jesus was denied by Peter, but worst of all, The father who had been silent during Jesus' request for some other way would pour out his wrath on his son. Jesus was 100% God, right? I mean, he got it. Yes, and he was 100% man. And, And at the same time, and we can't get our heads around that, but when you understand what it means... That Jesus was one person, two natures. The Trinity is one nature, three persons. Jesus was one person, two natures. When you recognize that sin, the theological term is this. It may sound confusing, but sin is accidental to the human nature. It it wasn't accidental. It was intentional, of course. But again, it's just a technical term. Sin did not have to be in the human a part of the human condition. Adam and Eve were created perfectly righteous, 100% righteous. That is why Jesus can be fully tempted and that temptation can be utterly legitimate because he was 100% human. And why at the same time as 100% God, he cannot sin. It's impossible for him to sin. It starts, your mind starts to go like that. Not as much as it does when you try to think about the fact that there's never been a beginning. And we will have a wagon and straitjackets right outside afterwards, you know, as we talk about this a little more. But you see, here's Jesus in humanity. So incredibly alone. And his father is not only silent when he begs him to find another way. But he will pour out his wrath on the only pure human that has ever lived, untainted by sin. Why would all of this happen? So that you might not have to suffer the fury of God's righteous wrath. So that you will never have to be alone. Every single person who believes that Jesus died to take his or her place in punishment for sin will never know the terror of God's righteous wrath that Jesus knew on this night that was beginning to turn into the day when the full fury and wrath of God would be poured out on him. It looked to all the world Like Jesus' kingdom had been destroyed, it had all 
been for naught before it even began, it was over. And Jesus said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus died so that you might live. Have you ever acknowledged before God that you were a sinner who deserves eternal punishment? Have you ever asked God to forgive your sins? Can you imagine how it would sound to God after he sent his son to the cross if someone were to stand before him and say, God, I I tried to live in a way that pleases you. I know I was better than my neighbors. I mean, most of them anyway. I, I did everything I could to earn your favor. Look, the cross loudly proclaims that you cannot earn God's favor. Why would he do this to Jesus? If you could be good enough to stand before him and say, I ought to be in. I deserve it from what I've done. That's what the cross says to that. But it also says that you are deeply loved. So much that he would do this to his son. And by the way, that's also the answer to why me, why is this happening to me right now? Why am I sick? Why have I been abandoned? Why can I not think straight? Why can... God sent his son to the cross. His silence right now in your heart and your mind is not an indication that he does not love you. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. Our sins condemn us to hell unless something happens. This is what happened. When you confess Jesus, God's undeserved favor Restfully on you. Actually it does. And then you confess. Why would Jesus have needed to drink that cup? Because we were destined to drink it. And God said, Jesus, I want you to do this. Because I love those I've created so much. You cannot earn your salvation. All you can do is accept the gift of salvation that he offers in Jesus. Confess your sin. Believe that Jesus died for you. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, um, we're so undeserving of the love that you showed in the plan of sending Jesus to the cross. We're so undeserving of the love that Jesus showed 
when though he desperately wanted to avoid separation from you, Father. He said, nevertheless, your will be done. Thank you for this great sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to walk this path of increasing and utter loneliness we might not be lonely oh Lord if there are those here this morning who have hoped that they could be good enough in your mercy show them not only their sin but also the great price that was paid that they might know you and live forever thank you Father for loving us so in Jesus. May your spirit burn these words into our hearts and may we yield to you as we allow the life of Jesus to shine through us. As absurd as it is to say I've got to work out my salvation. It's also is equal, it's equally absurd to say I can live any way that I want now that I know Jesus. We can't. Make us like him. And when we fail, shepherd us. Bring us back into your fold. Thank you for making provision and making way. In Jesus' name. Would you stand?